Today's episode of the two-man power trip of wrestling is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Podgo is providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co. That is one more time, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo dot co. The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock-knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else! Oh! Oh, my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to two-man power trip. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. This is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time, and I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Well, look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that, and every kid up, they knew they could kick the shit out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the flagship episode, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. I am your host, J.P. John Paz, and on today's show, we have the ECW founder, the ECW owner, the legend himself, Mr. Todd Gordon, joins the show for an epic interview, a very long and a very, very good interview Awesome to get to talk to Todd both on and off the air about a myriad of topics, but especially the ones we get to talk about in this interview were amazing. We go through the history of ECW. We talk all about Paul Heyman. We pretty much break down every major angle and wrestler that joined the company. It's just a really, really fun interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it, and I don't want to really talk too much and go into you know too much detail here because the interview is quite long in length, and I feel like... 
we should rush and get to that right away. But I just want to also mention the other podcast, part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcasting empire. We have Taking to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard, University of Dutch with Dutch Mantel, Taskmaster Talks with Kevin Sullivan, Pro Wrestling 101 with Just Incredible, Talking Tough with Rick Bassman, Trump Mania with Lavi Margolin, and then of course, last certainly not least, Shane Douglas's Triple Threat Podcast. For more information on all those podcasts, please go to our website, tmptempire.com. Yes, that is tmptempire.com. You'll find out the latest and the greatest information about our podcast. There's so much going on here on the Empire, and this interview, there's so much going on, so I just want to send it off very quickly over to the interview because, like I said, it is longer in length. I think you're really going to enjoy that, and you don't want to hear me blather on and go on. You want to hear from the man himself, Todd Gordon. Like I said, you're going to go through the complete history of ECW, even his exit and issues with Paul Heyman, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, and kind of everyone in between. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a great interview with the former ECW owner and founder, Mr. Todd Gordon. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, at Two Man Power Trip, and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Mike, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit JJ Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. Right now, he's the former owner and founder of ECW. He's a hardcore Hall of Famer in 2009. Of course, he's a businessman and entrepreneur. He is Mr. Todd Gordon. Todd, welcome 
to the two-man power trip of wrestling. John, pleasure to be here. Now, this is a great to have you on. It's been years in the making, we'll say, at least. Love having you on. But what are you up to today? What, what do you got going on? Well, right now, still running my business, uh, Carver W. Reed. It's a jewelry store and loan shop uh, downtown Center City, Philadelphia. Just celebrated our 160th year of being in business. Uh, fourth oldest business in all of Philadelphia, actually. Uh, and we're just, like, rolling along. But it's tough with this virus, I'm telling you. We're down to, like, just me and my wife working instead of five or six other people. Wow, crazy. But it's awesome that you've been around for 160 years. But obviously, the uh, you know, with the pandemic and the virus, wish it was under better circumstances as far as getting some hired help, right? No, I have a full staff. I have both my son, my daughter. I have other employees. But, they, you know, my daughter was pregnant. My son lives with five people in the house all in the age of 30. Some other employees are in their 70s. I didn't want to, uh, you know, have them risk anything. So the only way to make this safe was the two people who lived in the bubble where my wife and I were the only two there now seven months straight. Wow. And so how's that? Yeah, that is brutal. So how's business? How's everything going? Thank God we're busy as hell. I mean, we've been around for so long that we're always going to be busy. And as I, they wrote about it in the Philadelphia Inquiry yesterday, the other day, that we have grandparents. You know, we're on three or four generations of families that come to us that need us. And it's important to us to be there for them. And they're very, very loyal to us. I feel like you and Philadelphia kind of go hand in hand, right? I mean, you just are kind of the embodiment of Philly. You, have you always, you know, just always, loved Always, always, always. Always been Eagles, Flyers, Sixers, Phillies. Always been Philadelphia. Always been about the wrestling crowd in Philadelphia, which is the best crowd, in my opinion, anywhere in the country. Uh, yeah, I've been all Philly forever and always will be. That is so true. I feel like even the you know, WWE show, WCW show back in the day, I do feel like, and I used to love it coming from Asbury Parker, from Central Jersey, you know, head on down there. It was like, man, I can't wait to see how the crowd reacts to me. It was always something with the crowd where you knew, even though know, as a Jersey guy, I knew we were going to get an awesome crowd. Did you ever come to an ECW show? No, I was a little too young um, for ECW, but I used to always watch it um, on TV and, and the pay-per-views, and my buddies were absolutely obsessed. But I was just, probably just a little too young. When they did the restart of ECW, I went, but obviously that's nothing near this. No, there, there was no restart of ECW. There was just WWF trying to profit and make money off of the letters ECW, but there was never a restart. Right. Well, yeah, true. It was uh, an abomination, we'll, we'll say. It was not good. But I was a part of a lot of, like, we would do a lot of uh, indie shows in Jersey, and it was funny. It would be like, the card would be like Raven, Stevie Richards. No, it would be all the ECW guys, but it would just be under, you know, NWF or whatever, the uh, the New Jersey banner. Yeah, thank God those guys made a nice career out of uh, ECW. Oh, yeah. To, to, to kind of uh, say the least. So really, you know, with you and, and being such a you know, loyal guy to Philly, how did you actually get your start in, in pro wrestling? Are we going all the way back to TWA with Joe Go- uh, Goodhart? Yeah, Joe Goodhart had a radio show on called Wrestling Radio on a major sports station, which is all sports, you know, 24 hours here in Philly. I heard it one Saturday morning, and I was like, what the hell is this? They're talking about wrestling on the radio? I mean, back then it was like we were like a backdoor secret any wrestling fan. I said, this guy's got a show about it. So I ended up getting to meet the guy. We talked a little bit. I advertised on the show. Next thing you know, I was uh, involved with him a little bit. And I started uh, doing his shows, as uh, doing little guest spots for here and there. 
uh, I backed him finally a little bit later on. He went out of business, and then I, I picked up the mantle and just kind of took it from there. And then I guess you start Eastern Championship Wrestling. How does that kind of foray into, into the wrestling business go? I mean, are you kind of calling up the NWA, asking for help? Like, how do you actually get it started? No, at the very beginning, not at all. I mean, I was in my office one day. I got a phone call from uh, Bob Ortiz, the world's greatest ring announcer. And he came into my office one day with uh, Steve Truitt and Larry Winters. They said, we really don't want to stop this. Like, even though they're not running a lot of shows, we run the bar show every month. It's all locked in at Mike Schmidt's sports bar. All we need is a promoter. I said, what do you mean? I'm not a promoter. All you got to do is get a license. Or let me see what that entails. All that entails is putting up a bond for uh, $10,000. Whether you put your house or anything else, but the bond is only $10,000. It means it costs you $1,000, basically, to put up. So I got a promoter's license. I said, okay, they, here's the guy, Mike Smith. I'll do the music. I'll do the sound. I'll do the ring announcement. They move. All, all you got to do is just, like, show up and figure yada, yada, yada. Well, that didn't work out that well. I couldn't just show up. I became much more involved in that. And then we started to build something, and we started building it. It just got crazy. It was like a giant snowball going down a mountain and just got bigger and bigger and faster and faster. It was, it was breathtaking how fast we grew. So you never really wanted to kind of, you know, have your own promotion? You almost kind of had to get your arm twisted to be started to do it? To start to do it, would, would I ever, did I ever want to be involved in the business? I always want to be involved in the business. Any fan wants to be involved in the business. But did I ever want to run the whole thing? It never occurred to me that I could. Then it turned out that not only I could, but we could do it very successfully. So the original idea for ECW, kind of what, what is it? Like, what's the original kind of concept and idea? Well, the original idea was when I said Eastern, I said, you know, we could grow this to beyond just Mike Schmidt's sports bar. We could run Jersey and Delaware and, you know, places that you could drive to for the, for the crew, so to speak, uh, and make it all, the, all East, you know, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Philly, like, Eastern champs, all the East Coast, you know, hot spots of wrestling, so to speak. And when you're doing that, do you have contacts, or are you just kind of relying on, you know, Winters and Tree uh, Ortiz and, and these guys to get you some contacts? Well, no, at the very beginning, I was just using the local guys that Joel used, and then I would just call, you know, not hard to get a phone number, and I would call someone, so I was like, oh, you're going to call Ivan Koloff. He only costs X amount of dollars, and he's a great guy. Ivan Koloff, I still mark you out back, you know, at the very beginning. Yeah, I'll call Ivan Koloff, sure, give me his number. Thinking like, hello, Ivan? He's, oh, yeah, brother, of course I'll come in, I'll work for you. My pleasure. Here's the cost, blah, blah, blah. Tell me who you want me to put over. I said, what? Like, I'm thinking, like, these guys are going to want to do a job for, like, my little local guys. Uncle Ivan was the first one. He said, tell me who you want me to put over. He sat down there. First night, we had a long talk. He said, listen to me. You want to do this right. Do it right. Don't bring in these guys. These egos are so big. All they care about is, like, getting a victory and getting out of there and not taking that bump all night long. These guys who want to work. These guys who have no problem elevating other guys. He was so, that was the first night. You know, and from there, I was lucky enough to get a hold of Jimmy Snooker, and Snooker was phenomenal. He was just one of the greatest guys you could hang your hat on. Anything you need to get done, he would help you get it done. Snooker was amazing. Yeah, if you think about, like, the early days, you were using a lot of, like, old-school WWF guys, Morocco, Tito, Snooker. You know what I mean? It, like, not necessarily they're old, but old school if you think about how they were kind of the 80s boom of the WWF. 
Yeah, they were recently off TV, and I wasn't using a lot of them. I used like one a show, basically. And Sal Bloma was local, so that was something Jimmy could work with in the beginning because he had worked with him in WWF. And the Morocco thing came about because, oddly enough, Bob Ortiz was a good friend of his from when he had come in for TWA, whatever the case may have been. He said, Don's wife, you know, she's an airline hostess, whatever. She, he gets free tickets in from Hawaii. All he does is pay his room and, you know, extra rent that. And of course, nothing to fly him in. So next thing you know, is Morocco and Snook. How can you, how can you resist Morocco and Snook, especially back then, early 90s, and they're feuding, you know, through all the late 80s in WWF. Oh, yeah. Were you always a big wrestling fan? Like, you sound like you're maybe a WWF guy. Were you always a big fan? Yeah, here it's all we got was WWF when I was a kid. But yeah, from the time I was like five years old, I was a wrestling fan. As far as kind of. I used to fight my father. Cause he used to come in the room when I was a little kid, maybe eight, nine, wherever I was. And he'd be, well, I'd be watching, you know, Mr. Slice, Mr. Fuji and uh, Professor Tor Tanaka uh, wrestle against whoever it was. They throw the salt, and I go, "Oh my God!" And say, "Don't you understand that? They're not really blind." And he would scream at me, he'd be so angry. Scream! <laughs> Don't you know it's not real? I said, "Leave me alone!" I just want to watch watch my show. <laughs> I was like, "I don't want to hear that." I didn't believe him. I just wanted to watch what I was watching, and I believed everything I saw back then as a little kid. Who were some of your favorite guys? Uh, definitely Bruno. All the baby faces. Bruno, T.J. Strongbow, uh, before he turned heel, Victor Rivera. You know, everybody was like, you know, the baby faces in the old WWF. I didn't know they were doing the same match in every other city. All I knew was I see a commercial for the matches coming to Philadelphia. They're like, oh, man, would you take me to that? He said, are you crazy? I said, I really want to go to that. I want to see this live. I had to wait till the following, it was like three weeks of building up, like whoever it was, Bruno against Baron Von Raschka. I had to wait till the following Saturday for the first commercial to come on to say, this time the, at the arena is going to be so and so. Oh, so Bruno won. Oh, so long. Like, I had to wait to find out that result. It was like, in the needles for a week. That was the greatest time in the world to be a wrestling fan. Now, as far as kind of you and how you're funding ECW at this point, how like how is that going? Is that easy, hard? Are you making money? Like when you first kind of started Eastern Championship Wrestling, is that a kind of hard you know, when to I get? Started out, we weren't drawing a lot of crowd, you know, much of a crowd. We were doing like a hundred to one hundred and fifty people at the sports bar, and maybe one other place we'd run here and there. <clears throat> and uh, the guys were only making like fifty dollars a night, so it was pretty much close to a break even. You know, this music guy who got me to do this and Bob, they're all working for free. Larry's like, we'll work for three weeks. We'll keep this thing going. And then I was hit by a guy who came to me and said, listen, I know a guy who started a new channel called Sports Channel Philadelphia. <clears throat> I said, what's that? He said, it's going to be an all-sports channel. They need programming. He would take your show if you give him a pilot. I go, really? TV show? He said, yeah, absolutely. So we made a pilot. It was pretty horrendous. And they put us on the air because they needed programming. What a start, huh? It's like one of those things. It's like, well, if we didn't script it this way, like uh, how, how we're going to get it started. But that's kind of just a weird way to get it rolling. It's like, all right, we'll put something together, and it's not going to be good, but they'll take it anyway. We were, we were had, we got that television deal like years before we were ready to be on TV. So we had to speed up the process immensely. Is when I got in touch with Eddie Gilbert. I mean, 
you know, once you get one person's number, you pretty much have everybody's number. And if you start running and becoming any kind of successful, then you don't need to have anybody's number because everybody's calling you. One of the stories I love to tell is I was at work one day, and somebody said to me, Bob Marion's calling. I go, Bob Marion? I don't know him. He said he wants to talk to you. All right, I pick up the phone. Yes, it's Bob Marion. I said, hi, Bob. How are you? He goes, running shows. I'd like to work shows. I said, well, have you ever worked before? I worked NWA. I worked NWA. I worked everywhere. I said, well, what ring name did you use? He goes, Bob Marion. I said, Bob Marion. I'm sorry. I never heard of you. He goes, Bob Marion. Marion. So barbarian. Like, what? I mean, this is the kind of cause I was getting at work. I was like, holy shit. Like, everybody wanted to work for us. It was a payday. He does have that thick accent, though, barbarian. <laughs> it is hard to understand him sometimes. <laughs> I didn't get it for a while, yeah. I'll now, be up I never brought him in. I was going to say, now, I don't remember him working ECW. No, you wanted too much money for what I, what I was making back then. So how do you get Eddie Gilbert on board? Eddie, at a joint show I did with uh, Dennis Carluzzo in New Jersey. And uh, we started talking. I told him about the TV. And he goes, you know, who you got booking the TV? I said, well, nobody yet. We've always been as a pilot so far, so we've got a couple months to get them together. He goes, well, I can run the whole thing for you. And I said, yeah. And then he started talking to me and talking to me. And next thing you know, and he moved to Philadelphia from Tennessee, and uh, we were off and running. So with him, did you see, like, genius? Like, what, like, what were you thinking with Eddie Gilbert? Did you like him? Did you think he was a I great, him. smart guy you for the business? I had such a good time together. It was unbelievable. Just doing the forget, forget the regular hanging out outside of the show. We just laughed all the time. Uh, doing the show itself, we had such a good time. He walked through these huge dance clubs in Philadelphia, like wall-to-wall people wearing a cape and a crown with the TV camera following him, the one cameraman, being totally absurd and I'm looking at the people around who have no idea who he is or what the hell is going on. And it was so funny. He was so enjoyable to work with. And little by little, unfortunately, you know, he'd missed, he wouldn't show up for work one day. He wouldn't answer his phone, where it may have been. And I said, you know, what's going on? Don't worry about it. I'll get it. And he started getting angrier and angrier. And, you know, his demons basically you know, they took him over, unfortunately, because I really loved Eddie. I loved to work with him. I thought he was a great guy. Paranoid as hell. Oh, my God, was he paranoid. He would pick up a newsletter, a progressing torch or whatever that would say. You know, in Memphis, Tennessee, Jerry Lawler because Gilbert was not there that night. He goes, See what he said? Gilbert was not there that night. You know what he's really saying? I go, that you weren't there that night? No, no. What he's really saying, and he tried to read between the lines. I like, I go, wow. You know, this guy's obviously been lied to and screwed over a lot in this business. Like he saw ulterior motive everywhere. But and as far as as far as like his booking and his philosophy and his ideas, you were right on board with with what he you know thought yes, was right. I wanted was to bring I, I always from the beginning. I wanted to make it real. I hated the fact that everything I saw on TV. Sucked. It just looks so bad and so phony and so unbelievable. And here he was bringing back the old Memphis style with the trash cans and the, you know, smashing people over heads with the trash can, the, the, the whole brawling outside of the ring. I mean, the things that nobody was doing at that point anymore up here. 
They were doing it down there, but they weren't doing it up here. And down there, there was nobody there to see it. Up here with RTV, there's a lot more people to see it. So that was definitely the hardcore product I was looking for before we evolved it and what we did. So kind of leave ECW. Did you fire him? Did he leave on his own accord? How does he exit? No. He, I went up to the studio where they were doing TV that day. He and his brother Doug were there. And he, we got into a little bit, and he said, hey, if you don't like it, I can fire me. I'll go home. I said, Eddie, go home. I said, like, you do me no good right now. You're whacked all the time. I said, I love you to death, but this is like, it's no good. It's a bad business relationship. He said, all right, I'll show you. Come on, Dougie, Dougie, come on, we're leaving. They got in the car, and they drove off. Okay? I'm a businessman. I got to move on. We had a big... Match planned like three weeks later with Eddie Abdullah, Funk, and uh, Eddie Abdullah, Funk, and, and Stan Hansen. Eddie's out of the match. He's, as far as I'm concerned, he's, he's leaving. He's done. Now I got to replace Eddie. I call Kevin Sullivan. Who, by the way, Eddie hated his guts. Oh my God. They're like mortal enemies. So I call Kevin up. He goes, Of course I'll do it. I'd love to do it. I'll bring my wife, Nancy. We'll do it. I said, okay, come on up. He came in. Eddie calls me like two days later. I'm sorry, boss. I don't know what I was thinking. Like, you know, we'll do the show. Blah, blah. I said, Eddie, I don't even have to tell you this, but I've already replaced you on the show. There's a dead silence. Who'd you replace me with? I said, Kevin Sullivan. Bam, he slams the phone down. So that was you know, the way it was then. Although we made peace after that, he called me again. Can I come to the show? At least say goodbye to the people. I've been up there for a while. Got I said, yeah, man, of course. I'm, I'm not a dick. You come back. Do what you got to do. Say goodbye to whoever you want to say goodbye to. Because I'm running an angle with Terry Funk down in Texas. Can I at least get involved in a little bit? I said, Eddie, you're not in the match. He said, no, I understand that. Like, can we answer the match? Whatever you say. I said, All right, we'll figure something out. To work out with him and Funk, were you were they able to do something on the show? Yeah, they did a little something. I think either after post match or at intermission. No, it could have been intermission because that's the last match. Something post match, and then they grabbed the mic and, and all hell broke loose a little bit. He and Paul. That was like the last time they ever spoke, and they were best friends. Eddie got Paul in there for God's sake. So before I get into Heyman, just want a curious curiosity: what's the heat between? Uh, Eddie Gilbert and Sullivan. Beats the hell out of me. I believe it was over Missy, though. Missy Hyatt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that That's my recollection. I couldn't tell you if that's 100% true. Cause I really don't remember that exactly. But that's, in my mind, that's what I remember. Something about Missy. Eddie oh. loved Missy. Oh, yeah. And with Eddie and, and Heyman... Heyman was kind of his assistant Booker down in Continental for a little bit, right? Wasn't he also? Yeah, they were best friends. Oh, my God. I remember the first big show we did at the arena where we actually had a real crowd. It was uh, Super Summer Sizzler Spectacular. And he was in charge. He was running. We went back to the hotel afterwards. Paul came in. I really hardly knew Paul at all. And Paul's like, I like this guy. Let's keep him. I'm like, shut up. But hmm. we all got along great. He and Eddie were, like, so close. But I guess he learned from Eddie. Because that night he said to me, he goes, no, Eddie didn't take the mic. He he did that on purpose to screw me. You know, everybody's out to get everybody. Like, he, no one believed 
anybody was doing something that they said they were doing. It had to be an ulterior motive, which is something I'm sure he learned from Eddie. And he said, he even called me before the show started and said, good luck. He just like to throw me off my gate. I said, whoa, you guys are like, whoa, slow down. How do you, how do you work in a business like that? You don't trust anybody. It's crazy. So they, were, they never spoke in it that first night. So did Heyman replace Eddie, or was there somebody in between as far as the booking? No, it was me, and then he was there that night, the first night I was running stuff. See, that's where history is so crazy. I didn't say, oh, run the show tonight. That didn't work that way. I put together that next show. He was on the show, and, I, and we, were, you know, we were talking. I guess he was vying for the book without me realizing it. He was throwing some ideas. How about this? Why don't you try this? I go, that's pretty good. I was going to do this, but it's even better. We started to collaborate a little bit. I thought, this guy's got some great ideas. Plus, we had things in common as people, and we became friends. And next thing you know, I said, hey, you want to take over the books? I can't do the TV. The TV takes an entire day, if not more, in the studio. I'm running another business. That business supports my parents, supports my kids. Supports, you know, I'm, I'm supporting everybody in that business. Me not being there, that business is going to go under. And that business has been around for a long time, obviously, 160 years today. So I said, I need someone to help with the TV. He said, I'll, do, I'll help you. Don't worry about it. I said, how much do you want? He said, I'll just do it. So I, I think we can be successful. I should have seen through that. Didn't. Nonetheless, he took over the book that after that. But again, everything was collaborative. I didn't walk in and tell me, here's tonight's show. We went through it you know, throughout the week. We were on the phone, God knows how many hours. <clears throat> my way to work, my home for work all night long. Once I got home, it was like hours and hours. And it was always like, if it can make both of us laugh, we knew it was a good, you know, good bit for humor. If it could pop both of us, then we knew the crowd would pop. Because, you know, the best wrestling writers slash bookers were all big wrestling fans. You can't not have been a fan. I expect to put together great angles. You don't understand the, the psychology of the audience. So with Heyman, did you like him, trust him? I, I think that's a big word with everybody, trust him. Um, what did you kind of think of him? I know great buy for the business, but what about him like personally? No, I liked him. I trusted him. I considered him one of my closest friends in the world at that you know, shortly thereafter. I mean, you have to understand, we were talking again you know, five, six hours a day, every day, for months and months and months. I mean, that was our relationship. And, yeah, I totally liked, totally liked him, totally trusted him. Absolutely. I saw the way he was disingenuous to the boys, but I wasn't, so we, I got past that. Because I felt like he was never disingenuous with me. I, I, he never saw me as somebody he could work like that. I think he saw me as an intellectual equal or whatever. Plus, I was 10 years older than he was. And he didn't try to play me. That didn't happen until years and years later. So with him and him taking over the book, did he have the same direction as Eddie Gilbert, or was it any way different with what he wanted to do with ECW? Oh, it's completely different. Number one, he introduced the whole, like, you know, up-to-date music. He turned me on to more music that I'd never heard of before. And even though it wasn't being streamed, I was 
I was a mainstream at that point. It was a little older. I was probably 40 back then. And uh, it was great. I mean, his, his use of music and his use of the way he did it. Like Eddie has, here's Eddie. This segment, eight minutes, Tommy Cairo versus Sandman, and whatever happened is what you saw on TV. Paul would watch that go, okay, that was the drizzling shit. Let's use two minutes of this and then take like a video, take some kind of song, put a video to it of their high spots and forget the magic. I mean, he had that natural affinity to put together a great TV show. And that, that is, nobody else has, that I ever met had that ability. That is one thing that's so true. Not only turning out the music, getting you invested into the characters by using the music. Very, uh, you know, genius stuff there, because that is what so many people say. Oh, the music was awesome. And, you know, using it. Were you legally allowed to use some of that music? No. <laughs> but, you know, how do you get away with it? We, were these, we just did it until unless we were to keep on doing it until somebody said, hey, I just heard about this guy who used this music. Like, no one knew about us. We were, like, under the radar. We were so under the radar. We had a TV show on at 6 o'clock at night in Philadelphia where the entire audience is yelling, show your tits. I mean, it's easily, so clear across the TV is ridiculous. Or, you fucked up. And, you know, the guys in the station were never calling me up and going, like, uh, dude, like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're cursing on the air at 6 o'clock. This thing was so under the radar. It was stupid. Until Chris says, Carlito decided to get involved and start alerting the TV stations to what we're doing and things like that. So that, with Carluzo, I mean, that is a long-running feud, right? With ECW, like him trying to undercut you guys, and obviously, you know, we'll get to that in a second, but was that always a feud with Carluzo? Because it seems like you used to get along with him. I didn't know him. He, called, he contacted me to do that show in Jersey. First time I ever heard from him. Uh, I knew he was doing shows in Jersey, but I didn't know him or, or, or think about anything about his shows. I was working on my own business. Sadly, as we grew, he couldn't worry about his own business. He could only worry about ours. The only way to elevate himself was to try to bring ECW down. And in order to do that, he would call the fire commissioner. He would do this. We called him in the parking lot one night trying to unscrew the valves and tires of the fans. I mean, it was, it was embarrassing, okay, to be honest with you. So the first time I met him was at that show. And at that show, he turned to me and goes, you know, I'm doing this without my partner, Larry Sharp. He goes, whatever you do, he asks you, you tell him, here's how many people were paid. And I said, what? Well, who's your partner? He says, man. Then why do you want me to lie to him? <laughs> why do you lie? This is my first meeting of this guy. I said, don't get me involved in your business relationship. Don't ask me to lie to your partner. That was my first real meeting with him. So, yeah, call, I believe. so obviously, maybe he's not the, the baby face of the whole NWA title throwdown. Then that every that, you know that a lot of people proclaim that he is like, oh, I can't believe they screwed over Carluzzo. Maybe oh, no, he, he was deserved never, being screwed never over. Never even close to the baby face. How I was driving down the street one day, turned the highway, and Mick Foley sitting next to me. And I said, yeah, that show was canceled. The dentist called the church up and said, and sent them a tape of our stuff. So we were doing it not in a church, but it was the uh, CYO, whatever. We, we had that building. Mix says, pull over. Dad was car. And that's when you still need to use change the phone, by the way. And he used his own money, which Mick fully never did. 
I called Dennis up and blistered him. He said, God damn you, Dennis. You're taking money out of my mouth and my kid's mouth. Don't you, I'll never fucking work for you again. How dare I? I mean, I, I never saw Mick talk. He's always so genteel and quiet. Definitely things were escalating. And he was doing it. All, I mean, everywhere we went, he had sent a tape to first. He had sent letters to. He, had, he was doing anything he could to try to, like, store shows up. And we didn't even know when his shows were. I, I could have cared less. It wasn't competition. I was just doing my own thing. I was like, why is this guy fucking with me when I don't even know he exists? It's unbelievable. His name pops up all the time. So that, you know, quote-unquote job came down with Shane and uh, the whole thing. That was so totally deserved. Did you know? Screw anybody. That was that was deserved retribution. Did you know about the whole title throwdown as it was going on, or only Heyman and Shane knew? Oh, you knew. Okay. We didn't talk to Shane about it until we listen. I was paying the bills. Paul wasn't going to do anything like that without me and he he and I discussing and agreeing upon it. We went to Shane together. And said, would you be willing to do this? And had he said no, we wouldn't have done it. We'd have come up with some other idea. But it seemed like a way to like get us out of the NWA, which is you know, the name meant nothing at that point. And Eddie Gilbert wanted to join the NWA. He said on TV, this is NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling. It makes us look bigger than we are. So I went along with it. I joined the NWA. I think it came. Well, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if you think about that that title tournament, though, it's just so epic. And obviously it launches ECW, but that promo by Shane is awesome. The fact that it's a legit shoot swerve on on a promotion and a promoter, a shady promoter, albeit, you know, it, it just came off so well. I mean, I mean, Shane just knocked it out of the park. Was he the perfect guy for the throwdown? Well, guess what? We didn't even know what the promo was going to be. How about that? Either one of us. Paul and I sat in the back of Oh, my fucking God. This is awesome. Like, we became fans watching that promo. Like, holy shit. Brilliant. I mean, who knew? We never discussed this promo with him. He just did it. Here we go, Dad. And then he says that awesome promo. I mean, that's All so good. All we do is say, I'm throwing, down his, you know, I'm throwing it down, and I'm making Eastern into extreme, and we're going to be a new national country, whatever. We're going for the big time now. And then when Dennis came back and cut that promo, and he said, like, he pissed on the belly. I said, relax, relax. It's all an angle. Just go in there and tell him if he doesn't defend the NWA title belt, you're just get suspended to be the NWA champion, which he did. He said, good. We don't want to be the NWA anymore. We want to be extreme now. It was really a pretty good angle. It is awesome. And for that time period, it was absolutely just, shocking that you know he, he would do that and you guys would do it but it was awesome because it created this kind of revolution and you guys were that kind of standout third promotion who comes up with the name extreme who wanted to go extreme was that all you all Heyman, or a collaboration not, of both? number one it was not, not me at all so let me tell you that up front uh but before you say that that night he said promotion to do that what it did was there are people who had never heard of us in the industry all going, wait, what happened? You know, telegraph, telephone, tell a wrestler. The whole industry heard about the NWA throwdown. And all of a sudden, everybody was talking about us in the dressing rooms. Forget the fans. 
the wrestlers across the country had heard about it immediately. It became news. And all the news sheets, all that, it was the number one story everywhere. So it instantly catapulted us into a different stratosphere doing that angle. Uh, extreme, Paulie, we're talking about doing the whole angle in the first place. He goes, what do you think of the idea of changing the name? I said, what are you talking about? I got tons of T-shirts. They say Eastern Championship Wrestling. It's not for everyone. Eastern Championship Wrestling. And Bobo, he goes, all right. So, like, how much do we have invested in the T-shirts? He goes, I said, what are you talking about? He goes, listen to me. It hasn't come out yet. But you mark my words. In two years, the word extreme is going to be everywhere. It's going to be involved in sports somehow. It's going to, and it wasn't it. There's no stream mm-hmm. sports back then. There's no stream anything back then. He's going to tell you that's going to be how he knew that. Your guess is as good as mine. But he's so convincing. He talked talk me into it. I said, fuck it, let's do it. And sure enough, two years later, extreme sports, extreme this, extreme that. Everything was extreme after that. We were first. Do you consider Heyman a genius? So many people say that, and I think some people laugh, some people say it's true. What do you think? Well, I think he's a genius. I think, as Kevin Sullivan said, he's the kind of guy you could lock away in a room and just let him do all the creative genius stuff and be a genius. There's you know, the bolts, fire bolts coming out, the lightning bolts coming out. He, yes, total genius. Once you let him out of that room, all that genius goes out the window because he just can't help himself. He can't. He can't deal with people in a real way. He can't be a real person around the wrestlers. He, he can't make eye contact. He can't tell the truth. That's a really bad, really bad thing. And that's what cost him. He could have had it all. Believe me. All of it. He, he really was that good at what he did. But then, unfortunately, his persona in real life, interacting with the people who were no longer on stage, both in real life, was a disaster. He is so good creatively, but so bad business-wise. It, it, it's like it's a real, not, it's like a it's real not, conundrum. It's yeah. not business-wise. It's, pers- it's just interaction-wise. I mean, he really, you know, he couldn't be a real person around once he got in the, in the buildings. You know, I'd watch him, you know, drive him there, and he'd tell you, I hate this mother, I hate that. And he'd be like, hey, brother, my man, he'd, yeah, I got you tonight. And he'd walk, I'd walk away, he goes, I'm going to make him do his promo last. He does that at the door 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, what the fuck's the matter with this guy? Like, you know, I would like him to send the guy, but I didn't like him, like, I can't use you tonight. King Kalua is a local wrestler. You've probably never heard of him, but he has. Mm-hmm. Yep, I heard him. One of my first early shows before we ever got TV, I said, I want you to do a job for J.T. Smith. He said, I can't do a job for J.T. Smith. I said, what do you mean? Said, Dude, like, I mean, I'm a known you know, quantity around here. I mean, he's like, I'm not going to do a job for him. I said, I can do it. I said, okay. Right. Do a double count out, do a double key, whatever you want to do. Shit on it. Go ahead and do it. They did it. Next show comes up. I got a call like four days before the show. He goes, oh, God, what's going on? What do you mean? He goes, He didn't call me this month for the show. He goes, Don't even tell me what day it is. I said, Oh, that's because you're not on it. He said, What do you mean I'm not on it? I said, Dude, 
If I'm going to pay you to do a job or to win or whatever it may be, that's what a promoter does. You're, you're, you're taking a job to do this X, Y, Z, what he tells you to do for this amount of money. You want that amount of money, but you want to take direction. I can't use it anymore. I never used it again. And I don't think uh, he did just, you know, anything else really big. Nope. I can't remember him, like, being booked besides, like, local. Like, you know, yeah, and he could, have been part of, he could have been part of our crew. You know, it's funny with the ECW guys. Some guys get remembered as an ECW original and some don't. Do you, like, why do you think that is? What do you mean by that? Give me an idea. Give me an example. Like, Mr. Hughes never gets talked about being an ECW original, but wouldn't you consider him one? I mean, he was booked in the no, early days. Absolutely like, not. Absolutely oh, not. you wouldn't? Okay. No. And the whole world who I love more than any two called Scorpio. Oh, he's mm-hmm. an ECW original. Oh, really? Okay. All right. The originals are the guys that were there in the beginning. And that would be like the Sandman. And mm-hmm. that would be, you know, uh, I don't know the very not the very beginning. We're still Eastern, you know, with Eddie. But I'm saying the guys at the very beginning, the, the public enemy, uh, Dreamers, Taz, Sandman, uh, who am I missing? Uh, Shane? No, Shane wasn't there at the very very beginning. I mean, they're all considered originals. I took the original thing up to like '95 apparently, but if you do that. And so, like, Johnny Hotbody, Tony Stetson, like, guys like that? Yeah, but they didn't really stay in the last. Um, we're not drawing the names. I should be able to draw them right out like that, but... Jason was, was actually an original. You know, he didn't come into a pause for a show. The guys who were there, like, the first year to Paul took the book. The Iron Man, Tommy Kyra? He was there before Paul, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those guys. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's better to get actually from you than me kind of throw my, my opinion who's original. You would know more than me who's technically an original. So and I don't know. I always thought. And the referees fitting in the Molinos, they were there from day one, long before Paul or Eddie ever showed up. Stevie Richards. Oh, of course. Dancing Stevie. Didn't he have the first match ever? Yeah, he's got to count Stevie. He was there. Oh, my God. I remember when we did the TV tape, the pilot. They did a battle royal. And Hot Body and Stetson, for some reason, did not like him. And they abused the shit out of him during that battle royal. They slapped, they chopped him so many times while the other one held him. It, it was ridiculous that, that thin frame he had back then. They beat his chest to death. And I resented that. I said, Stevie, you know what? Dude, you, you, you were a man that I, I'll tell you what, you didn't deserve any of that shit as far as I'm concerned. And he had a job for life with me. I told him that. And I love that kid to this day. I love Stevie Richards. Phenomenal human being. Absolutely. Such a great guy. Uh, talk to him uh, weekly. He's, a, uh, you know, either usually through email, but he's, he is a great, great guy. What about... He, work, he used to work upstairs in my store on the second floor doing the ECW offices. I mean, Gabe Sapolsky. They took, they took the orders for tickets. They did the, uh, whatever the things they were saying, whatever they were sending out Flyers, they work together up there. There's another name, Gabe. Yeah, Steve's a friend for life. And Gabe was he like Paul's assistant booker? Like, what was his? No. I know you're saying that. What was he like his role? Me up, said, I'm a, he, he wrote me, called me up. He said, "I'm a student at Temple. <clears throat> I'm a 
big wrestling fan. I, I love what you guys are doing. How do you have a newsletter? I'll do all the work. I'll write the whole newsletter, and we'll split the profits. I, I couldn't tell you what the split was. I don't know if it's 50-50. Maybe it's 60 for us, 40 for him. Who knows what he approached? I don't remember. I said, well, it's not going to cost me anything. It's not a dime. I said, he got the job. <laughs> I said, That's my kind of guy. So, no, he didn't become Paul's assistant, quote-unquote, after I was gone. So, with these guys, I think we did not mention possibly the best guy, or, my, you know, my, my favorite, possibly, Sabu. Like, what did you think about him and how good of a worker he was and how he was going to fit this extreme brand? Well, I, again, I'll get, this one's Paul. This was not me because I have plenty of things that I came up with creatively. I'll say that right now. Uh, but I did not come up with Sabu gimmick. He did. He had the idea of doing the Hannibal Lecter thing with Big Al, 911, pull him out on the gurney with a mask on. And it was phenomenal. The reason it was so phenomenal at first was the fact that there was nobody in the audience. It was a giant arena. You know, we had like 200 people that were lucky. So Sabu could pick up chairs and throw them in the sections that no one was sitting in. They were like, what is this guy? He was, just, he was like a crazy maniac. He's throwing chairs wildly. But he's throwing them in places where no one was sitting. In, in other empty chairs. And people were, it was like the Sheik. They were scared of him. I mean, you know how hard it is to do that in 90, even in the early 90s? I mean, by then, people were already starting to, like, catch you. Like, you can still make people afraid to come near you or touch you. That's huge. And then he started doing the table thing, when, at first just by himself, putting himself through the tables. Uh, who, no one had ever seen that before. No one would ever do a table spot to this day. It wasn't for Sabu. The guy should be rich as shit, and he's not. It pisses me off. I totally agree. He's one of my, see, all the originals on Sabu's are original. But basically, I have big love for those guys. And some more than others, obviously, but definitely love boys. And one of the Eddie, Johnny, where you'll ever know. Oh, the public enemy were awesome. They were. And I, awesome. I want to get, I want to get to them in, in just uh, one second, but I did want to mention another star that we didn't quite mention yet, and that was the actual arena itself. Right, I mean that that became a, a thing. That became like the the MSG of Philly, or you know, like the, the secondary big show. Like, so how did you find the place? What did you think about the place? I mean, it was an old bingo hall, right? It was a, it was a toilet. Anyway, Johnny Hotbody came to me one day. He says, uh, "I got this guy, you know. He's like my, he's kind of like my uncle, but you know, he's not really my uncle. He's fucking butchy." I said, "Yeah." He says, "He's got a warehouse. Uh, you can do shows there." I go, uh, okay. So what, I go to work one day with Johnny Hotbody to this place in South Philly, and there's fucking Butchie. And I call him fucking Butchie because literally nobody, anything but fucking Butchie. It's hilarious. In South Philly, that's the way they all speak. Yo, so fucking Butchie. What's going Like, that was the name. Like, his last name was Butchie. His first name was fucking. And that's, that, was, <laughs> that was South Philly. Honest to God, truth. Raise my hand to God. So he goes, come on, I'll show you the place. He talked just like that, too. Come on, you go to my office here. Well, when he said, I'm my office, he takes me up. He's like three steps, and there's, like, boards, like long two-by-fours across, like, nothing. Where you fall, you know, you're doing that. To get, I'm walking through this, like, 
oh my God, we're going to die today. Up to his office. Don't touch that. Careful here. Here, let me help this. You got a blind spot there. Went, oh, just to get to his office. That's how crazy it was. But the guy was great. We made a deal. He goes, I love this shit. Here's the only thing. You got to be out of there before midnight and cleaned up because we got midnight bingo. And the ladies love their midnight bingo. That's important. I said, okay. Goes, Otherwise, you can bust and break anything you want in the joint. The doors, the walls. As long as you pay for it, and I can fix it myself. Of course, you can't go fucking butchie. You know, hey, cost twenty dollars. Give me forty dollars. I'll fix it. That was butchie. I still talk to butchie, by the way. Uh, so he said, "Yeah, break anything you want as long as you pay for it. Go to town." The hardest part was getting out of there before the midnight bingo, of course. <laughs> yep, that is true. There's late, uh, running late ECW shows. And well, that didn't happen until after we finally said, "Look." The midnight bingo's got to go. We're paying everybody. Like, now we're a real customer. Now we're raising the rent, yada, yada, yada. But before that, you know, we had to get out of there. <laughs> the day I die. <laughs> I'll never forget, we left. It's like, the bingo started, it's like 12, 15. Guys got in the shower. We just, we're all getting ready to leave the building. As we're walking through the crowd, Sam goes, Yo! Bingo! And all these always go, fuck shit, I don't throw their cards down. I'm like, oh my God. Like, no, no, not really. He's not playing. He's just there, man. He's drunk. Like, <laughs> well, they were like, right, they were drunk. We had for him, like, their umbrellas and stuff. Like, I will kill that guy. What do you mean? He, I threw my card down. I didn't know what number they were like. It was ugly. But that was Sam, man. God bless him. I love it. And the public enemy who were, you know, it became a huge, huge act in ECW. What did you think about them? Because obviously, you know, the cheetah kid, Ted Petty, I, I think a lot of people were familiar with him and his ability. And then you throw in Johnny Grunge, quite an underrated tag team, if, if I might say so myself. Public enemy, Teddy and Johnny were kind of like way me and Sandman were during those years. Like Teddy became Johnny's handler. And unfortunately becoming Sandman's handler. That's, Teddy and I used to laugh about it all the time, but, that's kind of the way it was. Teddy was, you know, pretty straight. You know, he drank with the boys. But he didn't do any drugs or that kind of, you know. So, and he always had, like, come on, Johnny. We're getting to He's always trying to take care of Johnny. And me and Sam, is like, come on, hack. We're going to get, get arrested. Come on, let's go. Listen to me. Listen to me. Okay, Gordon. Okay. Like, it was like we were their handlers. I mean, I can still remember the, the night Cactus Jack was, uh, I think it was the night before he won the belt. And his parents came in with uh to see the show from New York. Stay in the same hotel. We're all in the same hotel and don't even ask about the hotel stories. But anyway, he came and he knocked on my door. He goes, Todd, 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 Todd. You know, Mick, what's up? He goes, Brother, I need your help, man. My parents are here. I go, That's great. He goes, No, Grunge is in the hall with his pants around his ankle. I'm sorry. This is the morning. It's like nine o'clock in the morning. I said, I'm sorry. He goes, Grunge, man. He's in the Oh, his pants around his ankles. So we get out there, we're trying to shake him. Johnny, wake Johnny, wake up. He goes, what? So what's he doing? He goes, I don't know. Last thing I remember, I thought I was going to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, boy. And there he was. We woke up. And meanwhile, let me tell you this. As Cactus and I walk over to him, there's these Spanish maids going, 
Mister. Mister. Wake up, Mister. Mister. <laughs> Please wake up. We got it. We got it. We got it. We got it. Like, oh, God. But you know what? Those kind of, that, that was ECW. When they left and went to WCW, did you kind of help them get that deal? Like, how did they leave and get signed? 100%. They took, they, you know, they said they're leaving. They're going to the WWE. Uh, they got an offer for it. I said, guys, that doesn't even sound right. Not knowing the time that Paul had something to do with that. And I really didn't know that at the time. I said, I mean, don't do anything until I can make a call. If you're going to leave me, let me help you. Because you know what? Same with, that, like, with all the guys. If they had a chance to better their lives, to make five times, ten times the money they were making, they broke their neck for me. Who's that? Who really broke his neck for me? I said, stop. We butted heads on this all the time. He hated anybody who dared try to leave ECW. How dare they leave making 500 bucks a week for 2,500 bucks a week? I was like, what are you fucking crazy? Anyway, I called Kevin Sullivan. I go, Kevin, PE's leaving. They're going to go to Vince. Here's what they're making. Can you make them a much better offer and make it worth their while? I'll get right back there. Okay, next thing they're going back, I can make it four times what they're getting from Vince. I said, okay. I called them up. I said, guys, I got you a better deal. Four times what you're making from Vince. Oh, my God, they couldn't believe it. But they were, like, dead to Paul after that. To me, they're my friends. And they busted their asses and their bodies for me. How could I dare deprive them? We're so poor opposite of that issue. You know, it was terrible. That is awesome that you did that. Did you know that there was some sort of relationship with Heyman and Vince? Because obviously it came no, out that I had no Vince... idea at all. Zero. At that point, no idea. All I knew was that's where they said they were going. Because I guess it would come out later on that Heyman was getting paid by Vince for a very long time, and the boys didn't know about it either until I guess um, he maybe I guess Vince started calling and and people started answering the phone and were like, why is Vince McMahon calling here? You right, know, I, didn't, I didn't know that until after United split. Interesting. Does that kind of make you think, like, what the hell is this guy up to the whole time? You know what I mean? Like, well, no, make again, you think he's shady? It didn't come out until after I was gone. No, I'm saying looking back, though, does that make you, like, look back and, like, uh, at some of the things oh, you yeah, did? Yeah. Like, and certain, certain things made much more sense after that when I yep. realized that. I said, ah, yep. well, that makes sense. That's why this happened. That's why that happened. Now, as far as, like, you selling to Heyman and you selling your shares of ECW, why and, like, how the heck, like, how did that all go down? That's a good that's a good story. It's a long story. So you're saying that's a long story. We should probably maybe save the, the longer story uh, for, for next time because we're getting a great interview here. But as far as your ownership of ECW, that ends and kind of, where do you go from there? What do you, like, what's next for you? What do you do? Are you still a part of ECW? I was very much a part of it. In fact, he was very much afraid that anyone else knows that there was an ownership change because he felt that that would hurt him tremendously with, A, the locker room, and certainly with a lot of the business contacts. Because uh, a lot of the people we were doing business with, whether it be Fumi Saito in Japan or whoever we're doing, you know, different places around the world, they didn't have the same relationship with him they had with me. In fact, they had a relationship with me almost in spite of him. 
as opposed to Ohino because of him. So he kind of, in a way, really, you know, he still needed you around because he was not a people person. That and the fact that I had all the business contacts and, as I said, a lot of them wouldn't do business with him. And he thought it was important for, you know, to be still like the front of the company as opposed to him. So when you kind of, or when he, I should say, kind of takes over and he's, you know, the boss, what are you doing? You Are you, I mean, you're still kind of keeping your contacts. What's your official title and role? I didn't have a title, but my role was pretty much the exact same role I had had up to that point, other than the fact that I wasn't going to keep doing all the uh, day-to-day responsibilities that I had been doing. At that point, there was not a financial incentive to do that other than to keep the company going as best I could help to do so I could make sure I was getting paid at the same time. So what was, like, were you focusing more on your shoot job, if you will? Were you kind of focusing more on that? No, I mean, I, I honestly always focused on both. I mean, I was doing that. I was also at the same exact time as the president of the Variety Club here in Philadelphia, which is a children's charity. President of the Palmberg Association. I mean, I, I was just like, like energy out the rear end back then. And it's caught up to me today, believe me. But yeah, it was, I was <laughs> doing a lot back then. Everything was a shoot job to me. So did you not really want to be an owner anymore? Was was it almost like, I know you say you're keeping your day-to-day stuff, but it was, was it almost too much for you to handle? Like you said, I mean, and you're doing got, all this other stuff. It was definitely at a point where, you know, my, I wasn't seeing my kids enough. Uh, I felt like they were still young. And I wasn't, you know, I'd been a really integral part of their lives since the time they were born. And I didn't want that to ever change. I also... We were returning one day. I said, you know, it's funny. I don't know what happened. I don't know when this, out of nowhere, one day, this became a job. It was a job the first couple of years. And I was running it and owning it. And it was just like a pleasure. It was like, I couldn't wait to get more and more, do more and more, more and more, grow more, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, it started to feel like a job. This is before I left or before I, you know, we switched ownership. With you doing that and, and Heyman, you know, kind of obviously taking over as the owner, what's the relationship between you guys like? Uh, awkward at first. It was really awkward. Um, you know, in trying to put together the deal we did put together, I didn't involve, get his parents involved. And by the way, I loved dearly. They were great people. I loved his mom and I loved his dad. And so they were involved in a lot of the conversations. And it was like, there was a lot of business stuff going on between us, trying to, you know, find out what's, what to do with this. How does it, this, you know, who do I call? Like him saying, who would I call if I need to get a hold of a lighting guy or anything? Basically transferring a lot of the work that he had no idea was even being done over to his side of the table. So I was still like the guy would call the building, and I would, you know, I was still doing the same thing I had been doing. I did it for another two years after that. Now, awkward with him, and obviously, you know, you mentioned his parents and stuff. Shane Douglas has a great story of how he was talking to, I guess, Paul's mother, and she said a great, a great line. She said he only lies when his mouth is moving or something to that extent. She, it, she, she totally saw him what he really was. Loved him, you know, desperately just like he would a child. His father saw no flaws in him, and the mother really saw who he was. I just think that's so funny that she's just, like, outwardly honest with, like, yeah, you know, you know, is the sky blue? No, he, he'll, you know, he'll fade green. You know, she just outright says you know, he's a liar, Um you know, he's a little bit of a storyteller. Like that's, I just find that funny that she outright just tells the boys like how it is. Well, the fact is, uh, you know, obviously they're still using that in WWE this day where he's talking about being a liar, 
They can bring up a liar, et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's like almost like accepted now, and they almost turned it into like a little bit, like you said, a little bit of a storyline, a little bit of a, of a joke. It's like it's like a serious thing, but it's almost like he's somehow taken it and t- taken it to his advantage. It's amazing that he continued on successfully with everybody being aware of that. Uh, not talking about in his WWE career, but I think the first time he left there or was let go from there years ago was because of something along those lines he got involved with. That's not my place to say. And then when they brought him back years later, you know, because Brock was coming in and Brock was an advocate for having someone else with him, and that was his boy. So I guess that's why he came back. When he came back, he still rose back up to a power position, and they all knew him for who he was there. So, you know, they knew what they were getting into. I don't know why they'd be surprised if anything happened. AJ or whoever it may have been. Yeah, I'm always kind of surprised that AJ and Gallows and Anderson, those guys were like, surprised. You kind of know who he is and you know what you're getting into. Never believe, you know, what he what he says or, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. So it's interesting that he still was having a lot of problems as far as when he got put into a power position. Oh, absolutely, because he just was relentless. I mean, he, he just would embellish everything. I'm going to California this weekend. I'm coming back with a TV deal, or I'm not coming back. And he never left town. You know, little things like that. The, the boys were hip to, and they were really pissed about. So that was the very, very end. I was already gone by then. And well, Stephanie, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Stephanie, what? Oh, I was going to say Stephanie McMahon tells a funny story about how in the WWF he was listening in on conference calls when he was on SmackDown, but it was supposed to be a raw conference call and they could see who dials in and stuff. And he says it wasn't him, but it was his number <laughs> kept dialing in. And then he said, Oh, I did told, it by accident or something. I didn't know she told that story. Cause that's what led to his being let go the first time. Yeah. It's on yeah. a DVD. I forget what DVD, but yeah, she told it on a DVD. Very fun. I think it might've been his DVD actually. Wasn't aware of that. Huh? <laughs> but that was, yeah, that's why he got fired the first time. You know, he was always doing things like that, you know, going to the sheets and putting something, planning something he wanted planted so he would look good and someone else he did not want to look good would not look good. It's funny that still to this day, his influence on the sheets, because, you know, you speak to certain guys in the business, and I speak to, you know, a million of them, they're saying that he leaks stories to Meltzer and Meltzer puts him over, and then you read the sheets about how he did such a good job on Raw despite them having the lowest ratings ever. So it's funny. His influence is still out there. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You know, his famous line, have I ever lied to you before? I've never lied to you before. I'm not lying to you now. I mean, that was what he, to everybody. I'll never forget New Jack one time. He said, Jack, we're, the three of us were standing. Have I ever lied to you before? And Jack says, you mean today? <laughs> Classic. I lost it. I was hysterical when he said that. And uh, just incredible, a buddy of mine, uh, PJ, he tells me a great story about how uh, Heyman gets on the phone with, with Shane Douglas, and I guess they're about to work a program. For, kind of before Shane's exit, I guess it's, uh, it was in the beginning of 99, he was starting to work with him, and he was talking to him on the phone, on speakerphone, and the whole time Heyman is giving the phone the finger and like saying all this stuff. So he thinks like he's being cool with PJ and stuff. And obviously PJ's buddies with Shane, he's like, is this what he does with me when like I'm calling him on the phone, trying to have a serious conversation? Like what a weirdo. Like, That's we- what he did with everybody. He, pretend, he pretended to be a certain person to them, but he didn't respect them or like them in, re- in real life. And I witnessed that for years. And, 
And he would kind of just get away with it almost? Well, how do get away with it? I mean, I mean, if every time you call me up, I'm going, hey, John, my man, what's up, my brother? How you feeling? And behind the scenes, I'm sort of giving you the finger on the phone. Who's going to know that except me and the phone? Right. Or me and whoever's with, with me when I'm on the phone. You're not going to know it. You're going to think I love you. Crazy. And you were kind of saying that the guys kind of caught on to some of the lies. What, like, what were the guys catching on to? Obviously, he was lying about trying to work out a deal with ECW. I mean, but that, kind that of was, was later on. It was in the locker room. It was always, you know, here, you know, like I can remember him and Sam having issues. He promised Sam, and no matter what, because he, he got a raise like up to like I don't know three hundred dollars or something crazy like that. So it was early on in our first year or whatever, and uh, or maybe it was right after I, I was out. He said. I will miss, you will always, you know, I'm taking care of you. No one makes more than you do. Goes, Paul, if you can promise me, swear to me, that I'll always make as much as whoever the top earner is here. I don't need to make a dollar more, but I don't want anybody else making more than me because I'm the one who's going out there every single night and literally killing myself, going, going like whatever, nine, ten concussions, whatever the hell he had in his career there. And Paul promised him that. And then one day he saw that that was not the case, and he went off. I mean, I, it was, you know, I'd like calm him down. And, you know, the infamous stories of the FedEx with the wrong number and him just telling the Dudley boys, hey, just knock off the last number or something. Like, well, it's too many numbers. Well, lock up, knock off the last two. <laughs> it was always – you know, that's what happened with Fumi in Japan. There's a Fumi. I, I FedEx the tapes. They'll be there tomorrow. And Fumi guy was getting angrier and angrier. He's like, he paid for this, these tapes. He had to get these tapes and these shows, and he wasn't getting them. He was pissed. He's coming to me, and he, said, he wrote me this long letter, which I still have. It starts down, Dear Todd, I respect everything you've always done. You've always been an honest gentleman. But your partner is a piece of shit. I was like, yikes. That was, that was so un like but that was how he opened the letter. It's a 13-page letter that I saved. I love that. Uh, he's just, you know, wise to it, though. I mean, that that's good because he probably thinks he's getting one over on Fumi and stuff. You know what I mean? Well, that was his modus operandi. I, I mailed, I overnighted your check. You'll have it tomorrow. He did it with me. I said, I need the this tape for so and so. They're coming in tomorrow. It's a PR thing. We have a chance to go and I'm meeting with a network guy to see if we can get on this network. Done. Here, I got the tracking number at home. I'm in the car right now. I'll call you back with the tracking and it'll be there tomorrow. He never said it. That was just the way you get out of you know any situation. Because when he says it in the car, I'll give you the number later. There's nothing else to argue about at that moment. And therefore, that part of the conversation is over. And then, you know, you hear stories that he owes this guy money, that guy money. Shane has it down to the penny, you know, how much money he's owed. It's just like. That's, well, that's not surprising. You seem to lay it off. That's not surprising. <laughs> you probably tell exactly what he owes with compound interest and with, uh, you know, whatever it is. Whatever interest is. That Shane, I'm sure he does that right down to the penny. But yeah, when I was there, there was no idea the problems of who's getting paid. They always got paid what they're supposed to get paid. After I left, when there was the financial issues. Yeah, and I'm not when I paid him, even when he was paying them, he was never late. It was always fine until the very end. Yeah, it seemed like as soon as he got like a hold of like the business side of things, it was just like kind of, I know it was a little bit earlier on, but it was almost like the, the doom or the end of, of ECW because he just was awfully like in charge of business and you're like, Oh, but sold out shows and you know, this is going on and he's got some back deal, you know, backroom deal with Vince. He's got to be doing good. And he just kept, I don't know, screwing it up. Is, is there any way to kind of pinpoint it or he just mismanaging everything? You can't do business 
with people, lie to them, and if you get caught, expect the business will go on the same way. Uh, the people were doing, he was doing business with, or we were at one time, that I was, that he was, whatever, other than the boys outside of the locker room, are actual real business people. <laughs> you know, like, you can't say, yeah, deliver three dozen T-shirts here, here, three dozen there, and I'll pay you on Friday, and then I'll pay them on Friday and tell them their checks in the mail. You, you can't do business like that. I expect those people to still, A, work for you or do anything for you that can be paid up front, or B, not sue you. So how does he get the boys, like, on his side? You know what I mean? They always say, quote-unquote, drinking the Kool-Aid, and they would go through a flaming table for him. Like, how does he – how was he able to First do that? First of all, he, he literally was New Rockney. I mean, if you could ever hear one of those speeches, I'm sure some of them been on tape. He mm-hmm. could motivate the shit out of people. He was phenomenal for motivational speaking. Uh, in terms of getting into – I guess – what happened? Hold on a minute. Phrase that question again a more time. You just said. So how is he able to kind of be the the oh, super motive the motivator? Yeah. Well, that's what happened uh, after the third year, whatever fourth year, when I was I was still there, but it was getting towards the end of my time. You know, the boys had had it. They're tired of the lies. They're tired of the manipulations, and they all wanted to go somewhere else. And what he did was he came to me, we had this whole thing out about, I was, I was about ready to leave, I, and I was burnt out, I had enough, I couldn't keep doing it seven days a week, et cetera, et cetera, and I said, you know, I'm going to take an exit here, and we, let's talk about how we're going to do this, and he said, look, and the locker room was split, he had, he, we, we had such a great locker room, such a family locker room, and man, when I wasn't doing it anymore, all of a sudden, there was the New York guys against the Philly guys, against the Star, it was the whole locker room split and just fissured out. It was terrible. Just terrible. Um, and all the boys weren't happy. They wanted to leave. So we did the thing with me with the WCW, and I was trying to get the guys at WCW, which is all something he and I worked on together and just discussed thoroughly. Uh, the idea being that since we had always been successful with doing the us against them thing from day one, you know, we're the little guys. It's us against the Vinces and the Turners. And, like, we can't, but we're going to do it. We're the little ends of the can. We can do it. Well, so he needed something like that again. So what he had to do was say, look, you know, we're going to lose the company. we got to all band together now to save this company. Like, we're, we're all in, tr- in trouble. Like, Todd's going to do this whole thing in the WCW. And he got all the New York guys together, and they put them all in a room together. He goes, listen, we got to band together, and we got to uh, – I'm sorry, I'm getting text while I'm talking. I apologize. Um, for those who don't think I'm being distracted, I am actually distracted. I'm getting texts because my daughter is uh, getting ready to deliver her first baby, uh, my first grandchild, right as we're talking. And so, therefore, I'm getting texts while I'm speaking here. So, I'm sorry if I get distracted sometimes while I'm talking. Anyway, the point was that, yeah, he needed a reason to get the guys to band together again. He needed to get the family atmosphere back. Nobody was feeling like a family anywhere there. It was just, you know, now they're out for themselves. Now it's the New Yorkers versus the the New York clique versus, you know, the so-called Philly clique, even though some of them weren't from Philly, like Teddy and Johnny, but they were still part of the clique, Sabu. There was definitely division in the locker room. So in order to try to bring them all together again, this was this great idea. And then we discussed, like, maybe I'll come back someday, and I'll come back as a heel and try to bury the cut. It was a whole, a whole long thing. 
which it's like every ounce of whatever in my body to like suck it up and let people believe that and all the sheets write about that that oh my god this guy was trying to bury his own company why would I try to bury my own company when I need to get paid out of the company to retrieve you know, what I'd already put into that company so put the company out of business I'm not getting paid so the whole thought of that is so ridiculous but nobody thought, looked at it from that point of view because everyone just didn't know whether it was up or down at that time we discussed financials and uh, that was the idea to get the locker back together and get the company rolling again so I sucked it up and I played you know acted as the, the heel so to speak other than Maybe the three or four people I was closest to, like Fonzie, Scorpio, Sandman, they knew the truth, but they kept their mouth shut at my request. And uh, it worked. I mean, the locker room got back together again. They became a group again a little bit, and it got them through that turbulent time. Let's put it that way, before it broke up again. So what was the relationship with you and WCW? It wasn't. It wasn't a relationship. It was a... I had this mild relationship with Terry Taylor, who had worked for me a couple of times back in the Eastern days. Uh, I called him up. I said, you know, I, you know, I had a relationship with Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what he said. Well, had already gone over. Like, they did go there instead of WWE. So they got more money. And, you know, they trusted me. <laughs> so now it's like we're just putting feelers out, so to speak, so that we documented that something had happened. But it wasn't anything really going on there. There's never a time when like five or six people were going to jump with me to go to WCW. This is never even a reality. So did you know Eric Bischoff at all or not at all? No. In fact, the only time I ever talked to Eric Bischoff was um, once when we were doing the whole thing with uh, getting Arn Anderson and uh, beautiful Bobby to come in. And uh, something I'll never forget as long as I live, my one and only conversation with him, it starts out with, Mr. Gordon, I said, yeah, I guess. Let me tell you something. If you ever want to run a show directly across the street from a Jim Cornette show, you can have any and every one of the members of my roster for free. I'm like, excuse me, I hate that motherfucker, and I'll do anything to put him out of business. I said, well, that's a really good first impression you just made on me. I'm like, holy shit, who said that to someone they don't know? <laughs> What kind of, what, I mean, who would, right then and there, I said, bad businessman, bad businessman, bad businessman. Get to know me, become friendly for you, but, but first statement, like on a phone call, I've never met the guy. Talk about showing your ass. I guess he was not a fan of Cornette then. Obviously. But again, how do you say that to me? <laughs> you don't know me. He still never met me. This is really strange. Yeah. So how did Anderson and Eaton, it was just a, a simple talent exchange that he kind of... Uh, what do you mean exchange? They were kind of working for Cornette at that time, actually. They, were, they weren't with uh, WCW at that time. Or they, I don't know what their contract situation was, but they were like able to go and come and go as they pleased. So of course we wanted to jump on that. They wanted to jump on Pillman and everybody else. And that's just a normal thing to do. Especially right off of TV, you're going to help pop the ratings. There was never going to be like an exchange, though. There was not, nothing like, hey, will you, we'll use this guy, that guy. It was just a, hey, their contracts are open. You can use them for such and such dates. Yes, absolutely. And that was, and that was just the one time. It was just the one night, that one special night, you know, that mixed, you know, two nights, I'm sorry, when it came with the hoods on, and no one knew who they were. And that may have been 
certainly close to it, if not it, one of the two or three biggest pops in the history of the arena. And they pulled those hoods off and started to turn around, and people realized it was Bobby. And then when Orange took his off, they um the plate. I never saw anything like it. I thought that building was going to fall down and crumble. It was so loud. Great pops for sure. Actually, you know, Cornette gets an awesome pop too when he makes his surprise uh, debut, which is insane that he was in ECW, but a part of that WWF angle, that was quite a surprise. Yeah, that was a deal he made with Paul where he said, uh, I'm very good friends with Dennis Carlozzo. It was credit. You know, it's pretty nice for him to do this. He was just, I'm going to do this for you, but I want you to do something for me. I want you guys to bring Dennis to the back. I want you to make him look good in front of the boys. I want you to, you know, like a not a not apologize to him, build them up. You know, want you to like you know, you know, warm and cuddly kind of thing. And he made the deal with Paul. I, never, I at this point I was not making the deal anymore. So you know, years later, and that's what he did. And that's when he came in. Did Carluzzo ever get like what he was requested, or that never happened? No, <laughs> of course not. Paul didn't do what he said he was going to do. Cornette left pissed. I mean, that was Paul in a nutshell. He'd say anything to anybody just to get what he wanted. And I heard Cornette wasn't supposed to be paid, but he he gave him like $1,000 in cash or something. Uh, I think that, Cornette felt again, it through. He, he snuck it to him or something. Again, I don't know because of the fact that at that point, he was in charge. Forget the Cornette story. I think he said like he put something in his jacket or something, and he didn't know what it was. And I guess he like he's like, all right, see you later. And he left, and he opened it up. It was I think it was like a thousand dollars in cash or something. And he wasn't supposed to be paid for the appearance. He was supposed to you know obviously do the thing for Dennis. And I guess it never ended up happening. Typical kind of uh, Paul Heyman like stuff. Yeah, and again, because he never knew down the road when he would need Cornette or they'd have to be on the same. You know, he knew where he's thinking about heading. Vince into Vince Land because he wanted to be in Vince Land. He wanted to be Vince. And, uh, you know, he didn't want to burn that bridge. Do you think having that relationship with Vince and your Paul E kind of kills your credibility? If You know, if anybody kind of finds out, like, hey, I thought we were anti-them. Like, you know, it's us versus them. I thought Don't we were anti-them. I can't tell you the war we had. And this is right after he, he, had, he had became the guy who's paying the bill, like right, at the, right at the transfer. The war we had, when he said, I've got something big, we're going to go and be Monday Night Raw on the page. I said, what? What are you talking about? He goes, I've been in touch with Vince. Like, like, this is the first time you ever talked to him. Of course it wasn't. He's been in touch with Vince, and we're going to do, we're going to do this thing, we're going to get a great, you know, give us a great pub before our uh, first pay-per-view. It'll be huge how many more people will stay in. I go, that is absolutely absurd. I said, we spent the last four years, three years, whatever, telling everybody that WF sucks. That they're not real. We're real. Because we are real. We're out there killing each other. I said, how can you now say to our fans, you know, we're the anti-establishment? We're, we're working with the establishment. They know it's an angle. They, they don't think it's real. At that point, you know, he was in charge. We fought most I mean, we fought about it for days. But had it still been my money, that wouldn't have happened. So he was desperate, you think, you know, to get money to get barely legal going to get the pay per view start? Or do you think that he always just wanted to work for Vince? I think it's a combination of both. I thought he would get a lot, he thought to himself he'd get a lot more eyes on his product, which is totally true. 
Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it was get about a fifty thousand times more eyes on this product than ever before. Trade off. We never, we never. I never wanted to be the next Vince. He did. I was very happy being just Todd. Having ECW and the hardcore fans are going, yeah, bro, we're like a family. Yeah, we are. I'm putting on a product that I wanted to see when I was, you know, sick of watching wrestling. My whole life loving it. I'm sick of it. I hate it. And now I put out a product that I enjoy. And if I enjoy it, other people who are like me or lifelong fans will enjoy it as well, which was really the silly crowd in a nutshell. I just want to go back to the WCW thing just for a second. So, you know, the Internet thing, they always say that there was a mole, the WCW mole. Was it Todd Gordon? There was somebody helping these guys get contracts and helping certain guys get Sandman in, get Mikey Whipwreck in. Was there a real WCW mole? You're saying no, there wasn't really. But who was getting it? Who was signing? Was it Sullivan uh, reaching out to Sandman and Whipwreck? Well, Sullivan pulled out uh, and first Sherry. And then he pulled out, he got a hold of, I guess, Eddie and uh, Harry and eventually Benoit. I mean, yeah. And then uh, as far as the other guys, the only person I could, you know, Raven went first. And Raven got, you know, Mike uh, Richard, Richards to come. Raven got Sandman to come. It was really Raven was doing all that stuff. I was long gone by then. I had no contact with anybody back at that point. I wasn't you know, involved with anything. So talking to my friends, just like talking to Squirp or talking to Hack or talking to, you know, Fonz. Or, no, I had nothing to do with the business at that point. It is interesting that they always say, oh, there was some sort of mole, but I don't think, I don't think you realize, like, hey, you know, the wrestlers the mold, could vet the them part, themselves want the more money. The mole part was, was your timeline mixed up. The quote-unquote mole part was when I left. And that was the whole storyline thing that, okay, this will bring his locker room back together. Those other guys didn't leave for at least another year. That's that my timelines, right? I, I think you're. You're, no, I think you're right on that. It's probably yeah, they left like months later for sure. Yeah, um, but I was just thinking of like I wonder what the thought process is that like the guys couldn't just contact the guys. You know what I mean? Like obviously Raven and DDP uh, are boys. You know what I mean? And, you know, I mean there's That's like a right. mix. Raven yeah. waiting, waiting, waiting to get an offer, begging to get an offer. No one wanted to work there anymore because the environment sucked. And the pay wasn't coming like it should have been. And I was gone. So the guy, quote, unquote, made it a family atmosphere, wasn't there anymore. So it wasn't like a family atmosphere anymore. It was like business. So they decided to take their business and get paid the most. Does that annoy you when you hear, like, WCW Mole and they try to say to you, like, well, no, there's a time it was, I was, again, I said to you, like, I had to suck it up and do what I thought was best to keep the company alive. And he talked me into believing, and I still do believe he's right, that doing that brought the locker room back together, which was totally fractured. And now if I had to be the guy they put their, you know, zeroed in on saying he was a bad guy, other than people I cared about the closest, you know what I'm saying, my closest friends, then, okay, I would do that for the company. It's the exact opposite of the way it's being portrayed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. It's, that's what's so crazy about it, it's the exact opposite. But I sucked it up, I ate it, and did that. I didn't think years later, he would, I assumed, he was going to come out and say, by the way, this is a big angle, but never did it. And that's what we don't really talk today. And it's funny that Heyman was supposed to be the biggest, you know, ECW supporter, and 
seemed like he couldn't wait to get like a some sort of WWE contract. As, as soon as ECW uh, closed down, he was on Raw as a commentator when Lawler was having his issues or whatever. You know what I mean? He filled well, in yeah. right away. But in all fairness, if he could have gotten the funding, he'd have much rather stayed in ECW and had his own company. He didn't want to be in WWE with, and work for Vince. He wanted to be Vince. He wanted to have his own you know, WWE, but in the ECW terms. So it wasn't that. I don't, he never tried to undermine, undermine the company. He just couldn't help but undermine it because he was lying so much and getting caught. Was ECW ever close to like a good TV deal, like a, like a, on a great station, anything like that? Was well, everything on the horizon? we got is I had a meeting set up. Just a sore subject. With my uncle's brother, who was a higher up at HBO. My uncle, by, you know, my, like a step, like not stepping, he wasn't blood relative, like married to my aunt. His brother, the big wig at RCA, HBO, yada, 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 got us a meeting. And I needed all these materials to walk in there with. You know, they were, I can't say they were beaten. FedEx, I don't remember exactly why I didn't get the materials I needed. But that screwed the whole deal right there. We looked like amateurs after that. So they didn't want to take a meeting after that. They want someone to come in ready to go. Here's some tape. Here's some this. Here's some literature. None of that showed up. So I had egg on my face. I said I had to cancel the meeting. That was about as big a person we ever got into. Supposedly got into having a meeting with. Seemed like that was like the one missing piece, right? I mean, you're on pay-per-view, you have a following, your shows that, you know, as far as actual attendance seem to be very well attended. That was kind of the one missing piece of the pie, right? It was like a big TV deal. Of course. And we needed a TV deal or like a cable channel, but not only a cable channel, a cable channel, maybe, you know, a pay channel possibly even, whether it be Stars, HBO, whatever, somewhere that we could be ourselves and do our thing and not have to keep bleeping out everything, not have to, like, you know, to be the hardcore, the Howard Stern wrestling, that's what we were trying to be. That's what my goal was. That's what I saw as the future for us. The Howard Stern was killing it on the radio and making a fortune and making movies and books before we ever got to, like, satellite. And that's what we were. We were the Howard Stern of wrestling. We were, like, the R-rated wrestling. And there's a market for that, a huge market for that, as there was back then. For sure. That, that, that's definite, definite big market for ECW. What did you think, because you said family atmosphere, the locker room site, what did you think, or maybe maybe it's overblown, the, like the, they always say rampant drug use in ECW and that it was out of control and stuff. Was it really, or is that just something they say because of it, it being, you know, an extreme product? Well, I can't compare it to other federations, number one. But what I can tell you is, I don't know how you define out of control. I mean, no one's passing around, you know, openly drugs in a show. After the shows were over, when we go back to the hotel, you know, you'd walk down the hall and there would be the guys in the one room, like six guys or the drinkers. Then the guys were the, you know, just the smokers in another room. You know, the pill poppers in the room, the choke guys, and we it was, there were definitely a lot of drugs. I mean, no question about it. Look how many guys about Dean's died to die. And you start with, we even start Rick Rude, Anthony, 
Pitbull, uh, Coley. I mean, you go on and on and on. Sad. Johnny Grunge. We all knew Johnny was going to die before he did. It was so sad. But, yeah, so at that time, I wouldn't know, but I guess, you know, I don't, you have to define rampant. I mean, I guess that is rampant use. Because certainly, if I was a different person then than I am today, I would have not been found so funny and, you know, humorous and been such a part of it. You know, I was definitely a part of being one of the boys. I mean, it is what it is. And I would tell you that... uh it's like the blood, like all the blood and guts of the next match is the ring. I mean, I don't think I could do that today with cooler conscience with all the diseases. There's no HIV yet even back then. At least there was. It wasn't commonplace. It wasn't big news. We were doing things because we didn't know any better. So people would smoke cigarettes in the 60s and they're like, well, no one told us it was bad for us. Yeah, we knew drugs were bad for you. But we realized that... Uh, the whole CTE concussion thing back then was not it hadn't been a topic ever yet. Same with uh, we were able to get away with a lot more. We couldn't do that product today. We just happened to catch lightning in a bottle, and we were just very, very fortunate that people were hungry for R-rated wrestling. Now, I spoke to New Jack probably, I think, maybe a year and a half ago. Maybe it was two years ago did an interview, and he just said three simple words about you. Todd is God. Did you have a great relationship? Like you said, you were maybe too close to some of the boys. Do you think that you were too close with them, or, or is it just yeah, that you no, had a great I, relationship? I just had a great relationship. Too close would mean they took advantage of a situation that never happened with anybody. Anybody. I mean, I had my my night's right party with with everybody from fuck Tommy Rich to Brian Lee to Doctor Death to you know to my regular gang. I mean, yeah, I I really like these people. You know, what I'm saying they're good people, and we got to know each other like intimately that way. And it was it was all well and good. No, no one ever took advantage of that situation. So I never felt like being close to those guys. If I ever asked them to do anything, whatever it was, they say, okay, boss, you got it. Tonight, I need you to do this. You got it, boss. No questions asked. And then there was the Pauly group, which was like the Dudleys and Dreamer and Taz, and they were the anti, you know, us, the rest of us kind of thing. They had their own lifestyle, and that's, God bless them, that's fine. But they, you know, that's where that division came in eventually that opened up the thing. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's even now, like when you go to conventions and signings and you hear the guys and stuff, there's definitely a divide. Like the Heyman guys and the, and the and you know the Todd Gordon guys, it definitely seems you know like no doubt Scorpio and New Jack and Shane and you know most of the guys like you. But they, then you're right, there is the Taz and the Dreamers of the world and Dudleys, I guess, that are kind of uh, Heyman guys. Well, yeah, those were his allies. They lived in New York together. They were the New Yorkers. That was that was the clique of New York. The rest of us, even though we weren't all from Philly, considered themselves part of the Philly clique. <laughs> whether it was Rick Rude, whether it was Brian Lee, whether it was Tommy Rich, they're not from Philly. Ted Pat, it'd be Johnny Grudge from Atlanta, I mean, but they were part of our group. Sabu. Eventually Van Damme after that. I mean, yeah. These were really cool guys. They were great guys, man. Like They could separate work from, from play, and they go out and do a great job in the ring and kill themselves. Whatever they needed, like, not want 
to go to a hospital that night because they were in so much pain. They did. What, are you going to begrudge them that? I guess looking back, maybe, because over, it's already overdoses, overdoses, and of course you're going to say it was a mistake. But back then, I understood it. And like I said, we, we got close. We're all, I consider my friends. And we, even when I wasn't in charge, like later on years, like Johnny Grunge was always calling me up. Teddy always called me up. When I started running the shows for Jasmine and for uh, PWU, who did I bring in? Scorpio, you know, Teddy and Johnny, Sam, and the guys that were, that were friends. And that went on long beyond whatever I could do for them in ECW or any other company. With you kind of watching it, obviously, from the sidelines, ECW closed down, what did that mean to you when it kind of closed its doors and it's over? I know you're not technically a part of it, but did you feel like a part of you, you know, died that day? Because it technically is your baby. thousand percent. I mean, I was hoping it would live forever, but I knew it wouldn't. I really did know it wouldn't. What do you think about Vince owning the library. You know what I mean? Obviously, you got the network. He owns that's the, that's the sore subject. I, you know, I I went to court to get at, at bare minimum the Eastern Library back, which was the first eight year and a half. My lawyers said it was a big law firm in Philly. They said, "Oh my God, there's, there's no question that's not part of this bankruptcy that Paul sold that." You, you, this is a home run. We'll take it on a contingency. Like we'll, you have to pay us. We'll take X percent of whatever we can get for you. They thought they're gonna get a fortune. And then one day the guy called me up and he said, "Todd, we're 110,000 out of pocket so far, and we haven't even scratched the surface. This guy's got more lawyers. This guy means Vince, and more money. And you know, this could be a, millions of dollars if we're done to get less than that. Now you're at a point where you're like." You're going to have to contribute 50%, or, but we can't do it all ourselves anymore. It's just going to be cost prohibitive. Well, I'm a businessman, so I'm not going to put a million dollars out, pay back 500000 just so I can say, yeah, I was right. It's not my, my style. So I had to cut my losses. Yeah, win for losing or losing to win. Yeah, it's not, not a, you're right, not a smart business move. Right, he's not going to sit there and fight Superman and finally beat him and say, of course, I'm dead now, but hey, I beat him. (laughs) That makes no sense. Right, yeah. Kind of (laughs) silly, looking back, for sure. What did you think, as far as, like, when you look back, like, you're on screen and being, like, the commissioner and and being the president and being on camera, is that something you liked doing? Because you were kind of... uh, you know, a great kind of character that you you know you can invest in and you, that you could believe and like on TV. But did you like playing the character? Did you like being on TV? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, enjoyed it very, very much, actually. Uh, I think that when I it elevated, I did like the fact that it started to become like, okay, now who can we have you know, take the commissioner out this week so they get over? I mean, after the fifth or sixth or seventh guy, it meant nothing anymore. Like it's saying, listen, let it mean something. You know, we're now we're at a point where you know, this one knocked me out, Snooker knocked me out, Shane knocked me out. I mean, after what, Curtis, whatever it is, it, it's going to start to lose its, you know, put anything. First couple of times, because I've been there for so long and I had not ever taken a, a hit or a bump or whatever, people were like, <gasps> holy shit. Todd Gordon just got hit. Like, I was the suit and tie guy, but 
also like the cool you know, commissioner guy. You know, the, the fans were like my friends. You know what I'm saying? So the first time someone laid a hand on me, it was like, holy shit. But by the seventh or eighth time, it started like, okay, what else to do? So when the Fonzie came along, that whole thing elevated. Probably my favorite time in the business. I it, love it, the Fonzie angle. Yeah, it's like a four-year feud, really, between you guys. Loved it. Loved it. Loved him. Absolutely. He's so he's a classic. You've done him before with an interview? Yes. Yep. You can do 50 of them. You wouldn't hear even a third of his stories. He's got more stories. You feel like he's been around this business forever. He's like literally he's like a 40-year career almost in this business. It's crazy. And the stories he's got are just absurd. And we used to love to travel with him. Me, him, Fonzie, and Scorp, and Nancy Sullivan. That was our fivesome. With you, like, taking bumps, were you trained? And how did you feel about taking bumps? Uh, I still don't know how to take a bump. That's why <laughs> I can barely walk today. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. Like, seriously, I have ridiculous back damage and leg damage and shoulder damage. And because I didn't ever learn how to take a bump, I just tried to make it all look real. I thought if I learned how to take a bump, which is to a degree, you know, I go down and slap my hands in the mat as I'm going down back. And there it is. Oh, that's a work. If I just fall, you know, the shit, they just hit Todd. You know, like, so, like when Fonzie and I did our matches, we just beat the shit out of each other. It's the same thing. Listen, I, we actually, I would say to Fonz, I am not going to go out there and be Cornette and Paulie. You know, rolling around with like fucking pads on, or any of those ridiculous manager versus manager matches. I hate that shit. Yeah, it, it's just I, funny. I hate that shit. I, let's just go out there and let's just beat the fuck out of each other. We'd come back to that dressing room door. No bullshit. The boys would pop like ridiculously. Like, dude, you guys beat the fucking shit out of each other. Yeah, he hit me in the head with his knuckles three times. There's one, two, three. <laughs> Whatever he was. Yeah, really, I love that time. I'm paying for it today. Do you think the boys respect you even more, like, for doing that? Like, these guys are crazy. What are they doing? You know, what are, what are they well, doing? Well, I wanted to show them that I understand what you're doing. I'm not looking at you like I'm above you. I want you to know that I, I would get down in dirty, too, if I could, the way you guys can, but I'm not your size. So the best I can show you that I would. You know, I got the color and things I had to do. And, uh, yeah, I think that it was good for – but I didn't do it for that reason. I did it because, you know, it, was, it made sense. It made sense for Fonzie's only feud in the ring to be against me before he did the Beulah thing, which is another Paulie trying to fuck me thing. That's another story. <laughs> another story for another day, I guess, as they say. Now, as, as far as – Listen to this thing with the hit like three hours there's only so much you can listen to anybody I wouldn't want to listen to me for this long hey great stuff uh, for sure now as we hit the wind down we'll head towards the finish but we'll definitely have you back on I can guarantee that um, in the not so distant future as far as you know the business and you said obviously some of your favorite things working with Fonzie maybe not taking the bumps but working with him and being around him what are some of your other like favorite moments in ECW well, the obvious ones would be rope. I should say nothing's obvious. My favorite ones were were definitely Sandman blinding angle. That was phenomenal. 
be at Sam and stay home for like a month. First of all, when it first happened, just the way we orchestrated it, me walking out there going, is there an ophthalmologist in the house? <laughs> I go, what are you like, what's the ophthalmologist? You know, what? And then I took Sam and out through the front door, with the bloody towel in his eyes, said through the back dressing room door, and there isn't anyone named out front, like, so right through the audience while the next match was going on. That was like, we did everything so right with that. Kept them home, no one saw them, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what would have been Gary Wolf. Gary Wolf, you know, he went to the, he got his neck broken, had his surgeries that are, everything's done across the street from my store. I'm directly across the street from Thomas Jefferson Hospital. So after every doctor visit, he'd always come over and hang out. He's like, you know, my spot okay? And my guy said, yeah, you're not going to lose your spot, blah, 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 blah. Because now Andy's working singles. I'm like, you're fine, you're fine. He walks in one day and he goes, look, and he's carrying the neck brace, the head brace. I went, Gary, oh, my God. So I've got a freaking phenomenal idea. He goes, what? I go, would you be willing to just, like, stay home or anything around in public, keep wearing that head brace? He goes, you want me to walk, wear this fucking brace another day? I said, no, no, only outside of your house where people can see you. He's like, all right, what do you got? I said, hold on. And then I got Paul on the first wall. I got it. I got it. He says, what? I got Gary's out of his neck brace, because, head brace, but guess what? He can put it back on. And that's all I had to say. He goes, oh, my God. I said, yes. And that's what we said. You got to stay home. So the next time we can get you out there, blah, blah, blah. And then came the idea of Shane doing that whole angle with him. And that made his career. Oh yeah, especially you know he was Dean Douglas. He came back in. He was, you know, he was doing okay, but that really, I mean, so no, Gary, I mean Gary's career. Oh, I was gonna say, really kind of brought Shane back into light as like a, a dominant heel after oh, you know God. after the throw down and came back as Dean Douglas. That really kind of uh, made Shane again too as this asshole heel. But yeah, you're right, definitely made Gary Wolf too. I mean, they're still doing that match. I, can, I remember how real we made it seem. I came out of that dressing room, suit and tie, etc. Dove under the bottom rope like it was John freaking Cena, and then Shane jumped out. And for some reason, I guess I caught up in the moment. I dove through the top and middle rope onto Shane. I don't know what the fuck made me do that, but I did. And I'm sort of swinging the Shane, and that's when the audience starts coming over to the railing. I went, uh oh, I made this look too real. Like they were coming after him. It got ugly. I thought, I love when we can get people. Like these people were so smart, but we got them with that. We got them with Bill Alfonso. We got it's amazing. Certain times you get them, and it's just it's so hard to do. It is funny because you think about it. They were the smartest wrestling crowd, and they bought into that. They wanted to kill them, and they were legit going to riot. So it's just awesome to be able to get a crowd like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to get a pop. It's another thing to have people go like, yeah, like they're, they're believing everything they're seeing, and you know you're creating magic. And that was that. that, was, that was, yeah. Sammy and Blinding Angle was definitely one of them. Uh, Gary Pitbull, Halo, one one. Uh, said this whole thing with Fonzie was, oh my God! The first time Fonzie was there, I had never worked with him yet. They're outside the building waiting for him to come out, not to get autographs. They got sticks in their hands, were like hiding them in the bottom of a car out back to sneak him out of the building. It was crazy. And then every time we did Jim Thorpe, which I don't know if you know Jim Thorpe at all, but it's, it was really it's like a high up on a mountain. It's the top of a mountain, so it's way high up. And every time we drive, you know, we meet Scorp, Sam and Fonzie, and Nancy Sullivan. And, like, halfway up that long hill to get to the building, 
And Fonzie, y'all get out now. You can't, you can't come in with us. You know, great kayfabe. Is here? Are you, yeah, here. And we make the wall like halfway up that mountain. This is a rib. <laughs> Every single show, Jim Thorpe was hilarious. With you and ECW, do you have any regrets as far as ECW? Anything you wish you could change? Anything you wish you could go back and get done? Any regrets yeah, at all? A thousand percent. If I could have kept my own game plan, which was a slow, gradual growth along the eastern seaboard, expanded little by little by little in a way that we could afford, that company could have grown to a much more successful company and lasted a lot longer. And maybe evolved over the times what we couldn't do or couldn't do or could do. Or may have gotten a cable delivery because whatever we wanted. But I got hurt because, you know, Paul came to me and he said, listen, I can get us an MSG, three grand a week. Don't worry about it. It's not going to cost you a dime. I'm New York. I've got every spot sold for every commercial. Okay? We've got to sign a contract. We're going to lose the deal. Same thing with Sunshine Network in Florida. Three grand a week. But don't worry, I've got at least 30 to 40% of them sold already, and we'll start and we'll sell the rest. Well, you know, one spot sold for you the show. So there's $6,000 a week going to be on TV in places we didn't run. But now we're going to be forced to run. Uh, something's just it's like a sourdough with me. That's all. I'll let that be. Let's go back to any upbeat before we hang it up. Yes. So what do you think is the legacy of ECW? I mean, it, it definitely was like the little engine that could, but like, what do you think when you look back and you know, the, the positives of what ECW was? John, all I can tell you is it's 25 years later, 27 years later, and people still say ECW at a shows. There aren't ECW shows. Getting goosebumps. That's amazing. How is it possible that all these years later, a crowd wasn't just breaking when ECW came or somebody goes through a table or somebody, uh, whatever. The legacy is is scary. I still don't believe it. I'm saying I'll be at work and my family will say it. I get these emails like Holland or this place and whatever. And they want me to sign things. Or I have people come in. I had a guy came in from, from, uh, one from Russia who was on a vacation years ago, two or three years ago, brought me like these Russian like cookies and cakes and just wanted to come in and meet me and see the arena. And another guy came in from, uh, I believe it was Holland, and uh, all the same thing. He was on vacation. He wanted to like see the arena. He wanted to come by the car for a He just wanted to experience what he'd seen on these tapes. And like 20-something years later, I got not so touched by that legacy. It is crazy. It is so, you know, revered and talked about years later, obviously, you know, with the WWE network, they still, you know, will, will have a ton of ECW content. So it can truly, you know, never really die. If, if let's say, you know, a young fans out there wondering what it is and they, they, you know, can even go on YouTube, it's all over YouTube and everywhere. So kind of one of those things that it will never die. I mean, it's, it's, uh, in, in more. If they could only watch it with the original music. Mm. Yes. See, that's why I like my tapes and my DVDs, and that's why my wife's like, oh, when are you going to get rid of this stuff? Because I like to go back and watch it with the original music. When you watch it sometimes on the network, 
it is kind of like, oh, man, because the music is so cheesy and fake. It's like, oh, come on. Like, Public Enemy's coming out, and people are, like, waving their arms back and forth. I don't know what the hell they're playing, but it's not here comes the high step, I can tell you that. Yeah, like I watched Bam Bam Bigelow come out and, and, and beat Shane's ass, and, and all of a sudden he's not coming out to welcome the jungle. He's coming out to, like, do, 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 or whatever <laughs> fake WWE <laughs> canned music they're using. <laughs> yeah. They, it's a shame because that really was a major part of the whole product. We were, you know, quote unquote, drugs and sex and rock and roll. That's what we were. You know, we were off the charts, man. It was like, the, and the music was a huge part of that, the rock and roll. Now, as far as you and like plugs and stuff, like, do you do? I know you really kind of sparingly you do signings and different things like that. Obviously, with the COVID era, it's different. But do you have like a social media presence where you kind of get out there and, and connect with the fans, or not really? Well, you know, I, I do. I do have a Facebook page. I mean, I I do hear from a lot of people on there. Uh, I, I anything people send me, I sign obviously and send back. I would never charge anybody to sign something who don't believe in that. It's not my style. Uh, I love when someone comes into the store, and even even if they're not buying something, but especially when they are, <laughs> I love when they come in and we start talking to ECW. And like, what was your favorite match? Your favorite angle? Oh, funk in a box, dude. Oh, my God. When Sandman came out of that box, or when Funk came out of that box, we're the same pants as Sandman. And Cactus was, oh, that was, and, and, you know, I love going through that shit with them. It's fun. I, I love the fans. I love the people who love ECW. It was like, I was one of them. If I was in the crowd, I'd have been loving ECW. I just have to be fortunate enough to be the guy putting it on. As far as your business, where can everybody find... Uh... Carver Reed. John, that's nice you to say that. That's nice you put my business there. We're downtown Center City, Philadelphia. We're in the corner of Tampa and Stanton Streets, directly across the street from Jefferson Hospital, Thomas Jefferson Hospital. And if someone wants to come down and talk ECW, I'll do it. If someone wants to come down and get a great deal on jewelry, I'll do that too. I'm not here to sell or push or anything. I just want to say I really enjoyed what we did. I love what we accomplished. I'm thrilled. Beyond thrilled. That's cool. You know, live. All right, awesome stuff, Mr. Todd Gordon. Just one last thing, and I think everyone knows this, but Todd is God. So thank you so much uh, for all the time. Appreciate it. Hey, John, you are an awesome interviewer. Honest to God, you're about as good as I've ever seen in the business, and I thank you too. Really appreciate that. High praise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now you go uh, go attend to uh, the grandkid or your future grandchild. Right, right now I've only had a 65 text while I've been talking to you, but I'm not going <laughs> All right, good stuff. Thank you, uh, as always, appreciate it. God bless. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.